What's going on, everyone? Maiko back with another episode of Hobby Talk. Getting ready to talk a little bit about the baseball card hobby, the sports card hobby, which is currently just booming. Things are going crazy. We'll get into all that. Right now, I'd like to introduce my guest for the day, Mr. Brian Roth. Brian, how are you doing today? Doing great, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me on. I know we've been talking about this for a while. I'm happy that's actually happening. Yeah, it's definitely going to be fun to talk to you. I know you have a ton of knowledge. You obviously, uh, well, maybe not obvious to all, but you are uh, really big into some pre-war stuff, vintage stuff. You're into the modern stuff now, so you're well-versed in the hobby. You're uh, you're integrating, doing a few different companies. You've been with one company that's up and coming for a while. But before we get into all that, why don't you uh, let some of the listeners know where they can find you in social media? Sure. So, of course, I'm on YouTube. You can find my channel at broth 6 um, I upload nail days, uh, grading reveal videos like Michael's alluding to, um, and other videos about my collection. Uh, you can find me also on Instagram at, at Hank Greenberg collector. Uh, most of the same kind of content there. Um, and then I'm on Facebook, of course. Um, you can find me by my name. So you obviously alluded via your Instagram name that you're a Hank Greenberg collector. You uh, want to mention some of the Hank Greenberg collection or some reasons why you collect Hank Greenberg? Because obviously, though he's an all-time great, that's not necessarily the number one player you see a lot of collectors kind of out there chasing. It's true. I think especially of that's true of people our age. I think they, I think collectors our age are more prone to collect people that they've actually seen play. Um, but it, I think if you talk to more senior collectors, um, Hank is, especially with dealers, Hank is a, a popular player. Um, when I go around to, at larger shows, usually either dealers are fresh out or um, they don't have much of anything to show me at all because um, his cards are sometimes tough to find. Um, but I have a whole video about uh, my reasons why I collect Hank, and um, I get the question all the time. Um, but I feel like I've... I've I've concised uh, uh, sort of concisely uh, um, spoken about it in the video, and I usually lead people there, and they are satisfied with how I describe it. There's a chance for people to find out why you collect Hank Greenberg. They just gotta go check out the B Roth Six channel. But it's just it's a shame that he doesn't seem to be represented a ton in more modern products. I mean, obviously he has some stuff, but they don't use them as much as you'd like to see them. And that's one of the reasons I really like some of the uh, products such as Topps Archives and stuff, just to help kind of teach the modern collectors and modern baseball fans about some of the players in the past that can sometimes get lost in the shuffle. Absolutely. Um, the last Topps product that featured an actual picture of Hank was in 2011. And I think they lost the rights to his estate because then in 2012, uh, Painty came out with National Treasures and have kind of had the rights to use images and name uh, since then. Um, but even like going back to his contemporary days, um, from his playing days between the 30s and 40s, he actually missed some really key sets. He was not in 34 Gaudi and he was not in uh, 48 or 49 Bowman, which are two huge sets 
or even 48 Leaf for that matter. So I think that if he were represented in those sets, he might have some more collectability. But he kind of missed um, some like really important hobby sets, uh, you know, as far as uh, the catalog goes. Yeah, it's a shame when you go back and find out that this player is missing in certain sets. And we, I think a lot of people now, they kind of think about like the exclusive licensing with like the whole Panini, Tops, Upper Deck. Uh, but that stuff went on back in the day too with, you know, Tops and Bowman. Like when you go back and realize like, oh, Mickey Mantle wasn't in these couple sets. Or like for me, Richie Ashburn doesn't have a 53 Tops card. And I love that design. And I'm like damn that's so disappointing that that's the way it turned out but it's just part of the history of the hobby yeah and think about it like this too i think one of the biggest robberies of all time is that stan musial didn't have a tops card until 1959 um you know he he started his his card collecting career i suppose and with 48 leaf i'm sorry 48 bowman um with which is a black and white card and he didn't have a color uh, like a real um, image color representation until 1959. So I think that's a huge disservice to Musial's collectability and legacy. And I think that's partially a reason why he's uh, a little undervalued in the hobby because there's not a lot of cards of him. Yeah, if there's not a ton of items to collect, that certainly hurts. And I think, you know, with modern cards, you kind of hear often, or at least I do, like there's too much, even though we have this exclusive licensing Obviously, Tops is pumping out, you know, dozens and dozens of products per year outside of this year as of this moment, which I'm mm. sure will change. But Panini, same thing. And, and there's so many rookie cards. And I'll hear people say, oh, you know, it's we used to have simpler times. But I think the more products that are out there, especially in different price ranges, that just that kind of appeals to more people. I mean, if you really want a Ronald Acuna Jr. rookie card, the prices have gone up, but there's some rookie cards you can still obtain it, you know, pretty, pretty fair prices. It might be a tops big league, not your first choice, but at least you have that option as opposed to, I don't know, maybe Mickey Mantle, where if you want that true 1951 rookie card, uh, good luck unless you win the lottery or are very, very well established financially. Yeah. Um, I think an interesting part about how Tops has catered to the modern collectors, they've given them options. And whether or not the collector wants the options or not, I think each set appeals to each collector. And we'll, we'll kind of touch on what's kind of hot right now in the hobby um, with Project 2020. But um, that's another example of, like, did collectors really ask for it? And if they didn't, like, how are they responding kind of thing? Well, now that you mentioned it, um, we have a bunch of topics on hand today, and we'll get into all of them. So I appreciate everyone listening. But uh, let's uh, get some thoughts on Project 2020. You alluded to it. Uh, some people out there listening might not be super familiar with it. I think it has blown up to a degree, specifically amount, um, to people who are involved in it. And people who have already purchased cards, like they're really, really into it. Uh, the secondary market prices on the early stuff and a good portion of it is very, very strong. And it's just, uh, I don't know if it's that people love the product that much and are that passionate about it, or if it's the fact that really everything else is 
been set to the side. We don't have new products coming out, but it's really been a major focus in the hobby lately. And you see, I see posts on social media consistently about it on Twitter, on Instagram, uh, obviously videos on YouTube, Facebook groups and everything. So Project 2020, we've got what, 20 iconic rookie cards, 20 different artists putting out a couple, uh, couple per day, multiples per week, um, artistic takes, uh, reimaginations of these cards. And you've kind of been kind of into it since the beginning, correct? Yeah. The first card I bought, um, was card number four, the Ermsey trout, which is the second most popular card in the set, um, behind the Ben ball or Ichiro. And I think what's most important to understand about this is it's kind of a revolutionary idea that tops kind of has melded two very collectible uh, parts of, you know, the world, sports cards and art together. And they've taken contemporary artists, world-renowned, you know, we're talking about, um, like, for example, Mr. Cartoon, who essentially in the 80s and 90s helped define um, Chicano and Latino culture in L.A., and you know, we have the ability to buy, you know, two and a half by three and a half renditions of his art, you know, for 20 bucks. And <clears throat> if you want to get tattooed by Mr. Cartoon, it's going to cost you 50 grand. Um, so we're talking about the ability to, you know, at like on, uh, on some level mass produce artwork, but they are limited It's print to order. So if I order a card and you order a card, that's two cards. Um, I think a lot of the appeal right now is that because the set has gained in popularity a lot of the early cards are now considered to be short prints um to give you kind of an example uh speaking about trout i think is the easiest example his first card there were a little over 2900 cards produced of his first image after his second card was produced um his card pretty much ballooned from $75 a card to about 200 to $250 a card. Then after Ben Baller released his version of the card, it kind of ballooned again to about $500 a card. Now it's a little settled at $475. However, um, Ben Baller's Ichiro, which is card number one in the set, um, has continued to rise now, is, um, has broken $600. Um, I'm lucky to have both of those cards, but... Um, I had a little foresight, you know, I think card number ones in any set are very important. Um, and as someone who uh, appreciates contemporary and modern art, I think it was such a win for tops. And I, th I think it was only a matter of time until the set kind of caught fire. Um, so I'm really happy that people are beginning to really appreciate it and discover more about these artists because they're very talented and, uh, it allows people to kind of dive into a, a realm of collecting and a, a collectability that they never would have experienced before. And it's definitely something different. And tops has been doing in my estimates, they've been doing a really good job marketing stuff online. We've seen it over the last few years and some things have been pretty big hits and deemed successful. Other things, maybe not so much, but it is trial and error. Um, I like the ability to buy stuff directly from tops, kind of cutting out the distributors. We've seen the prices of wax, go out of control in recent years and it's not all just because of the momentum in the hobby a lot of it is kind of the distributors controlling 
uh, certain things. So, you know, Topps has done a good job. I'm a big fan of the living set. I haven't really done a good job of purchasing cards lately directly from them, but that's continued to roll along. They've done obviously the Topps Now line, which, I mean, they've done the last, what, three or four years. I think this would be the fourth year. Topps Total, which gives you bigger team sets. Uh, and, and a lot of exclusive products. I'm actually excited. I, I haven't seen a great uh, online reaction for it, but the Topps uh, 206 set that they're releasing in five waves, 50 cards each. Like I'm excited for that because I have gotten really into the tobacco-sized cards for whatever reason. I guess it's because I've found my appreciation for the pre-war cards. But I just like those options. And Project 2020, whether you're big into it or not, like, Art is subjective, and some people are going to love some of the cards, and some people are going to hate some of the cards, and there's definitely ones that I'm just not really into, but someone's going to be into it, and I think it's uh, great to see great to see if people uh, get involved, and now you have these artists kind of getting involved in the hobby, and they're going to bring other people in who maybe didn't collect sports cards in the past, but they like sports, they like the artwork, and... Uh, I think anytime you can grow things in a good, positive way, that's a good thing. Yeah, and you bring up a good point about the artists bringing people in. I, I'm pretty active on like the top social media platforms because I want to see kind of like what's being teased by the artists and what's coming out. And on their pages, they're having they're getting a lot of support, especially from people who have left the hobby. And then they're like, I haven't bought a baseball card in 20 years, but. I'm supporting my favorite artist. Um, and the artists get, get a cut of each card that's produced. So in a sense, like when you're buying a card, you're not only supporting tops, but you're supporting artists too, especially in a time like this, where people are not going to be spending a lot of money on art. And this is a pretty good way to, uh, su- quote unquote, support a local business and a local artist. Um, I think another interesting aspect to this is the artists taking their cards and autographing them and kind of making that collectible and that in demand. Um, another interesting, uh, way this has become collectibles. Don Mattingly has a, um, a charity. I don't happen to remember the name of the charity, but if you just Google Mattingly chair, like Don Mattingly charity, you'll, you'll find it. Um, they've been buying a certain quantity of, of each of Don Mattingly's cards release up up till this point and he's been autographing them in very limited amount of series and they have been very very collectible i mean we're talking about a card that you know retailed originally for twenty dollars that now secondary markets is 350 so there is power to to this set um and it's really exciting to see people kind of latch on and maybe have a little bit of fomo and pay a lot for a card that they you know wish they bought you know, at retail that they missed the 48 hour buying window. And it's fun. It's very exciting. And it's, it's fun to anticipate and, um, kind of wait for the new release at 12, 15 to one o'clock each day, each weekday. It's, it's, it's a really fun way to kind of spend some time. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of the artists and different people tweeting like little sneak peeks, giving people just a tiny glimpse of what to expect the next day. Um, Mm -hmm. it's definitely been interesting to follow, I uh, I remember when they first started releasing it and I was like checking the emails every day. I mean, I got to admit at the time, I was like, oh, this is kind of neat. Be interesting to see how things develop. I never kind of foresaw it taking off as much as it has. 
Uh, obviously, there's a lot of cards in this set that, you know, go for two, three, ten times their original retail price. And that's obviously um, going to play a role in kind of getting people excited, too, because even if people aren't buying cards to flip them instantly, people like to collect things they view as highly desirable. So if someone yes. has, you know, a certain kind of price value that that drives extra people to uh, to pique their interest. I think that's something that we're uh, starting to see uh, with sports cards in general as well. But it's uh, it's interesting to follow, and it it'll be interesting to see uh, how things kind of continue to work out. How many more do they have to go? Like, when is this? Is this being? How long is this being spread out till? It's pretty much through the end of the year. We're not even like a quarter of the way through yet. Like we haven't reached card 100. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. It is. It's what 400 cards, right? 20 times. It's a 400 card set. Yep. 20 artists doing 20 cards. Like, I feel like they've been releasing them at a pretty good pace. They're not like. I guess I start getting used to some of those sets, like Living Set, where it's like two cards per week, and it takes a while. But you know, 400 cards is a good amount of cards. So there's a long way to go then. Yeah, I think. Uh, uh, the set's very collectible. You can choose to collect a player and get 20 renditions of that same card, or you can choose to collect an artist and get 20 artist creations. Or like me, I'm just buying cards that I think look cool and I'm putting them on my wall on a shelf <laughs> and I'll kind of decide like at the end when I've you know bought the cards that I have, like what I want to display and what I want to not display. And so I think that's, what is so great about this set is kind of bringing, you know, collecting back in, in, in the way that it kind of was. And we're buying things that we like and we're doing it in our own way. And of course, they do give you that little chance at the, the thrill of the chase as well, right? The one of ones, this gold frame one of ones that are kind of randomly inserted in the people's orders from what I understand. Right. So the one of ones are randomly inserted into the production run. Um Early on, there uh, has been a lot of debate about the artist proofs, which are silver-framed cards, no different at all, really, besides the silver frame and hand numbering on the back. Uh, but because of the hype, um, people have been setting up bots to buy the cards. You know, at ninety-nine dollars or one ninety-nine now, what they're what they're going for now, and then flip them on eBay. Um, and it's the same kind of buyers buying those cards and. You know, I, I've never gone for one. It's not my interest to. Um, but for the people that want the limited edition collectible, it's become frustrating for them. Um, so I think Tops is doing a lot to help combat that. You know, they're setting up security measures or banning people's IP addresses and, you know, doing things at that kind of level that, um, you know, doing what they can to help fight those, uh, those users trying to do it um, illegitimately. Well, Project 2020 is certainly booming. It's been a big success for Tops. Another thing that's booming is the hobby. The hobby has certainly been growing for the last five years. You know, it seems to grow year by year. We've had rookie hypes. Like 2017 felt like a huge year for rookies with Judge and Bellinger. And then 2018 got even bigger with Acuna and Soto. And then, of course, you have guys like Devers who wasn't he was a top rookie, but wasn't as sought after then as he is now. 2019, you have Guerrero and Tatis. 
So that year by year, it feels like the hobby has just been growing and growing and growing. Social media being in existence, I think, has uh, helped hype that. But in the last couple months here, we had, when everything broke with hmm. coronavirus, we had a little bit of hesitation and a very slight temporary kind of market drop. Things softened a little bit. But since that time, the boom has exploded and it just seems to exponentially grow seemingly by the day. And we're talking about everything. Wax prices through the roof. 80s cards have gone nuts. 90s cards are super popular right now. Modern cards, specifically ultra modern cards being the last couple years, all these rookies just booming just everything's red hot brian what's your take on this uh this massive hobby boom we've been seeing well where do we start right i mean there's so much to kind of dive into um i think you know with i think the obvious discussion points are mike trout is the goat and michael jordan is the goat and i think if we kind of like establish those two players in their time like best player of the generation best player ever like whatever connotations you want to have around that and then everything kind of like trickles down from there right so like jordan's prices move that means scotty pippen moves that means robin moves that means kobe moves that means uh, name your iconic you know nba player here um the same thing with trout right like Trout update now is all-time record high, and like, who's to say it's going to stop? The unfortunate part is that, you know, now it's priced a lot of collectors out, and now it's become less of a collectible and more of a, a tangible asset in a way um, that people, you know, if they bought two years ago, um, you know, at five hundred dollars for a ten or whatever it was, you know, now it's over 3000 and it's, it's it's hard for an average collector to pay 3 grand for a single card um so i think there's a lot to discuss you know regarding this topic is it good for the hobby it can be i think there are some some people who don't think that it is i think uh there are some people that think it's great and they like to see just like you said they like to own things that are collectible and desirable um, and those uh, and those collectors are excited about like what they have being more valuable um, and people collect for different reasons and there's no right way to collect there's no there's no wrong way to collect it's it's what we make of it people collect in different ways um, and I think there are still opportunities to buy in this market you have to be savvy though um you have to know the market you have to know where to look and you have to know if something's too expensive you have to know like when to walk um i think when you were uh when you were speaking about you know the like right after covid kind of broke people were a little timid with buying people were selling a lot well i don't think anyone kind of anticipated how much of a boom we were going to experience. And so, you know, if you sold a trout update 
four weeks ago, four to six weeks ago, you know, you're, you're feeling kind of sorry, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, you've missed out on pretty much two X profits, um, off that card. It's tough. It's, it's a, it's a tough time to like be a true collector, um, because you are up against a lot of competition right now and prices are, are literally at an all time high. But I feel like we had a similar conversation last year too. Everything uh, appreciates in value. And I think Mark Three Fu One One Two is like he's coined this fr- phrase. Like this year's prices are next year's discounts. I think that's how he said it. And I think that rings true for a lot of cards. Yeah, there's no doubt that things have been escalating for a while, and I could foresee this boom coming. Maybe not to this degree, and definitely not at this rate. I think that's what's really surprising because like you said, six to eight weeks ago, you're like, there was so much uncertainty. It was like, well, what's happening? Is there going to be a baseball season? Are people going to have money? Are people going to be healthy enough? To go? Like you didn't really know. And right. I think what's happened at this point is the hobby has been growing for a long time and more and more people have gotten involved in it, gotten back into it, kind of gotten others into it. Uh, that, that being said, we obviously have had some, uh, social media influencers get involved in the hobby, which plays a bigger role than I think people realize. Gary V has millions of followers on social media. So him bringing it up, you're going to have people who watch his content or read his content that used to collect that are going to go, wow, you know? That he's bringing that up, that interests me. I want to go reintroduce myself to it. Beyond that, you're going to have people who are, a lot of his followers are, um, you know, they have that entrepreneurial mindset, and they're going to get in, they're going to be interested, and they're going to look into it because of that. And then when they're going to see real money being involved, they're going to get involved in it. Someone like Phil Hughes with a YouTube channel that's blowing up and getting bigger and bigger, he's got a pretty big presence on Twitter as well. You're going to have people who are baseball fans as it is, who just happen to follow them, Yankees fans, whatever. If just a percentage of them go over and go, let me check out some cards and then they get involved. And there's others, you know, many other people as well. You start having articles in Sports Illustrated and the Wall Street Journal. I mean, all those different sources of media attention are going to bring in a few people. And beyond that, not only is it the influx of people. But what I eventually realized is even though we have a still a lot of uncertainty and I personally have a lot of questions about the uh, you know economic future in the country, but right now there's an awful lot of people, even if they are on unemployment, they're getting full unemployment, they're getting bonus checks. You know, I think there's like $600 bonus checks for unemployment. They're getting stimulus mm-hmm. checks. So they they do have an income coming in, and they're not going out to baseball games. They're not going out to the bar. They're not going out to the movies. A lot of people aren't going out to eat. So despite the fact that there's uncertainty, people have a lot of time on their hands. They still have money coming in, and they're not really spending it elsewhere. So now people are putting that attention, that time, and that money into cards, which I think has helped create this uh, – exponential boom of the last month or so because that's when it's really taken off yeah i think that's kind of the factor that no one really thought of but to touch on 
like back to like internet influencers, it's also never been easier in the history of time to buy a baseball card or buy a sports card in general. Um, you don't even need an eBay account. You can buy it on Twitter. You can buy it on Facebook. You can buy it on Instagram. And if you do buy on eBay, it's literally like three clicks. You can buy a card. You don't need a credit check. You don't need a background check. You can put it literally on a credit card and here's your card. I think other collectible assets, um, you know, art, for example, you know, art comes in all shapes and sizes. And if it's a large piece of art, you're going to pay a lot of money to get it shipped here or shipped to your place or shipped to wherever you want to ship it to. Um, but cards are easy because it's small. You can fit hundreds of cards in a box and that box, you know, of however many cards could be worth more than like in dealer's entire inventory at the national, for example. Um, and I think there's a lot of power in being able to buy something easily, especially for someone who, you know, like you said, is coming into this, either having not collected for a long time and getting back into the hobby, which I feel like has happened daily, or is someone who is a supporter of an influencer and is kind of following the leader. And the leader says, buy this card, buy this Giannis Prism PSA 10, because in 18 months, it's going to be worth triple. Well, the buyer already knows exactly what they need. So they go type it into eBay, hit buy it now, and that's it. And the card shows up three days later. It's very easy to purchase, and it's pretty easy to ship. I mean, if you want to be really lazy about it, you can literally just throw that one card in a bubble mailer, hope that it doesn't get crushed and you're good. But even if you pack it very securely, it, it's not a lot of work. So that's definitely true. Um, and there's so many other factors, too. Like you had alluded earlier to Michael Jordan. Obviously, The Last Dance has gotten a lot of attention, probably more attention than it would have had there been a full slate of full sports. Not that it wouldn't have been uh, well-received and watched by a lot of people, uh, would have done really well regardless. But the fact that that's really what people are kind of gearing up and looking forward to, that has um, certainly helped Michael Jordan's hobby. Not that he didn't have good hobby to begin with, but you're seeing kind of everything of his, especially in high grade, just go crazy. Um, mm. And then, like you've said, like they all have trickle down effects. So the sport of basketball has been extremely hot in this hobby for a while. And now with Michael Jordan, with that whole all-time great status, suddenly you're looking at uh, other icons in sports. And the Ken Griffey Jr. becomes one of the next dominoes where you have people going, all right, Ken Griffey's an all-time great. He's a huge name. Plus, the amount of people coming back into the hobby, a lot of them grew up in the 80s. And that Ken Griffey Jr. upper deck card was the card to have. So now people are going towards that. They're going towards the high-grade stuff. And boom, the price goes up what four times in the matter of a couple weeks yeah that that griffey card seems to be more of an anomaly to me or i'm having trouble understanding why it's gone up so much i mean i think isn't it true that card is the most graded card in, like in the psa pop report like over seventy thousand upper deck number ones been graded yeah, I can't say that for a fact, but it certainly wouldn't surprise me. I know an awful lot of people have gotten that card graded, and the nines are like, there's a lot of PSA nines out there, and that card, I don't, 
I haven't looked it up for days, but I sold one like a month and a half ago for like a hundred dollars, which at the time was a really good price. They were going for like eighty pretty easily, and you know some would go for a hundred here and there. And last I saw, it was like three hundred dollars. And there's a lot of PSA nines out there, so yeah, that that's a card that is not necessarily rare, but it's it's popular. And what I what I find with the hobby a lot, especially with the the stuff people are nostalgic about, like the 80s and 90s. Like, yeah, they made a ton of stuff in the late 80s, but that's what people remember. That's what they like. And that's why I think the, uh, you know, the gem mint condition, those prices are so high because a lot of people might have their Don Mattingly rookies, but they also probably have rounded or white corners. They maybe didn't uh, take as good of care of them as they uh, kind of wish. And I think another thing is just popularity of these players. Hall of Fame status is is definitely a key, but just being like a pop culture icon, I think, like for Bo Jackson, for Jose Canseco, for Don Mattingly, like those, that brings in a lot of collectability. So it's definitely been fun to watch some of these classics rise in price, but it's also kind of frustrating at the same time because, uh, you know, for yourself and I, we've been involved in the hobby for a long time. And I feel like it, you do kind of have that. Wow. I kind of missed out. I could have bought like a hundred of those in the last couple of years if I uh, really wanted to. Yeah, very easily. I mean, I know my LCS in New York city, um, they have, I don't know about still, but the last time I was there, uh, they had a bunch of 80s rookies, and they were sitting there forever, ever. He could not sell them. Now, I'm sure if I go into his case, they're not going to be there. Um, I think, you know, going back to, like, the Upper Deck Griffey and the Trout Update, I think some cards like that are, like, pop-proof. Like, it doesn't matter how many cards are graded in 10 or 9 or or whatever it doesn't matter like the car is still the car and people want it and like demand will never be like sequestered by the supply like they're never like there can never be too many because it's easy to buy more than one well maybe not easy now but maybe six months ago it was easy to buy more than one for a lot of people yeah and it's just one of those cards like i mean the mike trout is it's a modern card even though i mean i guess at this point it's what eight years old um yeah. So they made plenty of them, but it's also just everybody wants one. And at the time, it wasn't a huge card. I mean, some of these guys now, some of the prospects are the hot rookies. Like, everyone's kind of putting them aside. Even that, like, there were a lot of them that probably got damaged and banged up and stuff like that over time. Like, because they were thrown in comment boxes to a degree. So, yeah, you can definitely find them and you can find psa 10s but it's not as easy to find as i think some people would think it's it's something i've always i always saw with like tom brady back in the day like he wasn't supposed to be a big deal so people didn't pay attention to his rookies so yeah you can find jim mink cards but probably more of them got beat up than peyton manning because people were kind of sleeving up peyton mannings immediately right out of the pack tom brady's were going in the common boxes for a year or two yeah, I think the antithesis of that discussion is Juan Soto 18 update, right? Like as soon as that product came out, everyone knew Soto was the was one of the best rookies in the product. So like he pulls Soto, he goes into a paint sleeve right away, goes into a top loader right away. So like I think, you know, there's a reason why his 
update cards, both paper and chrome, have such a high gem rate is because people take care of them like immediately. And, you know, I don't, I don't think we're going to get back to a point where the rookies just go into a dollar box automatically. I think people are paying a lot of, a lot of attention and they're ripping a ton of stuff, retail and hobby, and they're saving their rookies. I mean, I'm sure people have boxes and boxes and boxes of just rookies and then they flip through them every six months to kind of see like, Oh, I forgot about that card. And that's a parallel and that's a numbered card. So maybe I can like piece this together. And now I have something that whereas before I didn't think I had anything. That's definitely true. Things are just, well, things always evolve in the hobby and, you know, something that's been consistent in the hobby for a very, very long time. It's something that everyone's always grown up having fun doing is opening wax. You always hear about people getting started in the hobby because their grandparents or their parents or whoever, they used to go down to the store and buy a couple of packs of baseball cards and open them up and stuff. And wax is also booming some of it to a sickening degree that like, honestly, I just can't understand like who is actually buying some of this stuff, but even the new stuff, I mean, 2020 Bowman is scheduled to come out in about a week from the time of this recording and blaster boxes are already being pre-sold on eBay for like $38. I think is what I saw. <laughs> I don't even know what the hobby prices are, but they got to be crazy. I mean, usually Bowman is fairly plentiful, at least when it first comes out. Surely it dries up at some point. But new release products are unbelievably expensive. And then stuff from 2018, just a couple years ago, I mean, 2018 Tops Update, Jumbo Boxes, Hobby Boxes, Blaster Boxes, those prices are outrageous. I think Blaster Boxes are like $100. And hobbies like 400 and jumbo might be even twice that part of that is because people love opening stuff. And part of that is because, well, there's so many breakers out there and there's so many people addicted to breaking stuff that so much is getting torn open that I guess it's just drying up quite a bit. It's uh, it's amazing though. It, it's a pretty uh, solid investment. If you're into the investment angle of this hobby, I mean, every day more and more product gets opened so less and less is available. It's crazy. That's true. Um, back in the 2018 national, um, when we were at that bar and we, and you did that live stream that night, it was really fun, but I spoke to a collector who collected unopened wax, like packs, like you get unopened packs. And we were actually talking about like at the national, when they opened the pack of 55 Bowman and pulled the mantle and everyone was freaking out. I asked him like, you know, what he thought of that as a as an unopened collector. He told me that he both loved it and hated it because he loved it, meaning there's one less sealed 55 Bowman pack in existence, but also hated it because it was opened and that's not like, you know, what he does. I think at the end of the day, a lot of people are in the mindset that the product is meant to be opened and keeping it sealed is like such a tease or is not like using the product for its intended purpose. And that may be true, but there's a lot of collectability in it because when you see something like if you see an update blaster, a 2018 update blaster, 
Those right now on blowout are being asked for $150. For I remember that, like, that's what I usually pick up a decent amount, amount of retail products and I'll open some. Usually I open some on camera on my channel and I'll usually put some aside. And like, that was like one of those products. I just, for whatever, I think I might've opened one on my channel. I don't even remember. And I didn't buy any and put any aside. Like I did buy some of the Chrome update, which is also uh, up there in price. But I just like, mm. now I think back, I'm like, why the hell did I not pick up it? Like I always pick up some. And like that's the year where it just goes crazy. And like I saw the same blaster boxes sitting on shelves, retail shelves for like probably like a month. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, and I think the thought is that you know, if you come across, let's say you come across a 2018 Tops Update Blaster, you're looking at it, you're like, oh my god. Like, there's definitely an Acuna in there, there's definitely a Soto, and it's probably gold, I gotta rip it. And then you rip it, and it's like, well, I got a uh, a Ryder Jones. I got a... Dylan um, Cousins. I got a Dylan Co I got a Anthony Banda, you know? You always think that, like, the card is in there, but like the odds of it being in there are, are are not high, so it actually kind of pays if you are an investor to buy unopened and keep it sealed, because there will be someone to buy it to rip it, you know, at whatever price they they want to pay for it, of course. But um, you're not guaranteed to get, I mean, if, as, as we all know, because we all open packs, we all, we all get it. You know, the rookie card explosion box, you get one pack of update and, and that's it. Either you get it or you don't. There's no doubt. There's like, there's nothing like opening a pack. There's nothing like it. Um, and like opening and like revealing the card that you were looking for or something that you were not expecting. There's not, there's no feeling like that, but, um, Oh, there's definitely like, more meaning. Like when you have a card from like when you break a box and you get a card that you actually want to keep in your collection and then you maybe get it graded and like you get it back again, there's there's it makes it extra special. Like not only is it a really cool card and something you were seeking out, but to know that you pulled it and have that memory, like that definitely uh just adds to like its its meaning meaningfulness in your collection. Uh, at the same time, even if you get something big and you can eventually part with it and sell it, like you're always going to have that memory of breaking it. So it's it's really fun to break stuff. I just prefer to break it at retail price or uh, when stuff comes out. But right now, I keep looking at stuff at like some of these different – like Topps Chrome in 2018. I'm like, oh my god, like these prices are insane. Like, Yeah. But then I sit there and think about, well, think of the classic products like 1993 Upper Deck SP, or I know some of the football releases, like contenders that have uh, Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers rookies. Uh, some of that old school stuff is like bonkers, crazy expensive. So I'm like, you know, as long as the hobby stays strong, there's no reason to think that the prices are going to come down. If anything, they could very well continue to rise at a steady rate. I wouldn't necessarily expect them to increase by like $50 a week, but it is uh it's just been kind of fascinating to follow and it's definitely something that's fun to follow too yeah no doubt i mean it's like a it's like a roller coaster ride and we're all on it and there's going to be the highs and there's going to be the lows and 
we enjoy the highs, we don't enjoy the lows because it makes our stomachs feel weird <laughs> or well, something. As, I don't know. as awesome as it is to break a box and break it like it, it, you know, if you're breaking it with friends and stuff, all that, that that's incredible. And when you hit that great card, it's amazing. But also when you spend $200 and then you get like $20 in cards, it's can be yeah. sickening too. So there's definitely a downside uh, as much as there's an upside. Uh, you know, one of the things driving all these prices, it's not just the hits. Obviously, the parallels, very popular. Autographs, very popular. But something that's really uh, been building up for the last couple of years in the hobby is the focus, the refocus on rookie cards. I mean, rookie cards have always been very popular, but I feel like there's been a really big movement towards people really chasing rookie cards and not necessarily worrying about all the hits themselves. Um, and it's geared a lot towards specific sets. Uh, key rookie cards, I guess, would be the word. So like a tops update and such. So I think that's another thing driving driving the hobby, driving the prices up because people are chasing these rookie cards. Like they want that Juan Soto rookie card before it doubles or triples in price again. They want the Ronald Acuna Jr. It's a little hard to break a product to get a Mike Trout rookie card at this point, but hey, it is what it is. But the, the chase for rookie cards has grown. And one of those reasons is grading people looking for those high grade rookie cards. I think like an interesting phenomenon in the hobby is that there are some cards that are more desirable in like their base variety rather than the parallel, which is rarer. Like, for example, I, I could be wrong on this, but I, I did believe, or it was my belief that the Luka Doncic RPA, like number to 99 out of national treasures, I think was actually a card that's more desirable, AKA more expensive than any of the subsequent parallels really aside from like the one of one. Um, and I think that's kind of like a, um, like a feed the masses kind of thing. Like it's popular because everyone thinks it's popular. Um, although like modern convention would dictate that the less of something, the more people want it. Um, but it's like a weird thing. I think like the focus on the base rookies, especially baseball rookies, like talking about our sweet spot right now, um, is like, is one that I can't foresee ever like going out of style. Like it was definitely in style collecting rookies in the late eighties. That's when the rookies boomed and then it kind of like fell off. And then Mike Trout, corrected that with his update rookie. I really can't see a reality unless we have like several years of awful rookies in a row. But the way baseball is going now, it's getting younger and it's getting more athletic and it's getting more exciting. And as long as we have like those three uh, factors in the game, I don't think that we're going to have a bad rookie class. Like they're always going to, there's always going to be like, even now in 2020, like we have people who have played half a season or people who have played none of the season. Like the Luis Robert, uh, short print rookie from opening day is a very desirable card. 
And opening day for the longest time has been like the product that people never buy, ever. It sits on shelves. It is just surplus, overstocked forever. But people bought a lot of opening day this year because they wanted to buy, they wanted to rip and find that car, which is hard to find. Opening day is like, if you pull anything from opening day, you're happy. Um, But I think it's interesting that, and and Tops is stupid, right? They get it. You know, I think that's why they didn't do like the, um, like the rookie card image variations of like the series two rookies from 2019. Um, and they didn't insert them at all in 2020 and in 2019 update. They just had the rookie debuts for like the biggest rookies, you know, like the Keston heroes and the Vlad Guerrero juniors, they had them, um, but it's a very like small select subject uh, uh, market for those, and like the big ones, you know, the Tatis, the Alonzo, you can even put Eloy in that conversation. Didn't have them, and then those people who would want those cards kind of pivoted to heritage actions because those are like your image variations. Those are like taking the place of your. Um, flagship short print, which I thought was an interesting phenomenon. Um, so I think year by year it changes and collectors are becoming more savvy and using precedence. You know, if something happens this way one time, how likely is it to happen the same way another time? Or, you know, is it going to happen in a different way? And I think someone to pre- like be, to be able to predict that uh, is really valuable because you can easily, you know, bob what everyone weaves. Yeah, and I think um I think one thing with rookies and this just this is just me like kind of spitballing things, but I I feel like, you know, as time moves on people learn and I feel like part of that has happened with baseball scouting. Obviously every rookie's a risk and it's hit or miss and different things can, you know, hurt a career. Um whether it's something the player does or freak injury, but I feel like scouting is a little better now. And with development and quick development, you kind of get a better idea of a player's ability to at the very least be a really good major leaguer. You know, back in the day, like the late eighties, you'd have all these guys that would be people would be chasing and like, they would never even actually play in the major leagues from time to time or barely get a cup of coffee. And I think that's something that helps drive rookie prices now because you're seeing these guys actually get on the field and play. And part of that is too with tops and major league baseball with the agreement of a guy having to be, you know, on the major league roster to actually receive the proper rookie card treatment. I think that helps too. Cause even if a guy has, you know, ups and downs during his first season, like in Eloy Jimenez, you know, he actually, if you look at his stats, that he had a pretty solid year for a first year rookie. And he, yeah, he really did. played very well uh, towards the end of the year. But being on the field there, just getting that exposure, I think helps someone like him. And I, I do think another thing uh, right now that's helping the hobby price wise, especially with the modern cards, is we are currently stuck in this. Um, long kind of spring training mindset where there's like a there's a positive uh mindset for collectors of all these different players and teams um that's going to be something that'll be interesting if they do get back on the field what's going to happen i think there'll certainly be an excitement with baseball being back and being back on the field being played which will probably drive things a little more to begin but once these guys get back on the field 
some of these guys, their prices might even elevate higher once they get out there and perform well. But for the guys who get out there and, you know, have a bad month or two with a shortened season, their overall numbers won't look as good. So, you know, you might see some price drops too a little bit. That's something I was actually thinking about before. But I don't know. It's it's definitely fun, you know, to see the rookie kind of craze um, continue and come back. It, it just feels a little simpler. And even though we do have varieties and different variations and such, um, chasing those rookie cards, it, it's kind of refreshing rather than just, oh, I got a hit. I got a relic card of this guy who, you know, isn't very good. But, hey, at least it's a hit. Yeah, and I think like an interesting phenomenon and like kind of like re- like touching on like what is inserted in a pack and what people care about. Like I subscribe to, to the rookie card explosion box every month. And sometimes I open a pack and I get a jersey card and I'm like, well, crap. Like I would have preferred a rookie card because that's like what I'm looking for. I'm opening this product to like find a rookie. And when I get a hit it's like well that was substituted for you know maybe one or two cards or maybe even three cards depending on how thick the card is right and so like those are all potential failed opportunities that like that pack held for me and i think it's like funny to think that like a something that is inserted you know like maybe even one a box like if i'm opening you know a flagship top product you're not guaranteed even an autograph you're guaranteed a relic or auto. And if you open your pack and it's, and it's the relic and you're like, well, crap, like I would have preferred one with a rookie card. It's, it's just a funny, like it's a funny place that like where we are now. But every now and then you open a rookie card explosion box and pull a Derek Jeter gold parallel <laughs> and then grade it. And it's, you know, it kind of works and it works its way out there for a number of rookie card explosion boxes by, uh, by our friend Filmington over on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, I think I paid for, you know, with that a year long supply of rookie car explosion boxes and then some. <laughs> but that's what's really fun because, I mean, that product specifically, like, it's an affordable price and it gives you a chance to open products that you typically wouldn't be able to. Like, you can't really go out there and buy some. I mean, you could, but you're running a very deep risk breaking a box of 2018 update. Whereas if you get that one shot with that one pack, it, you know, it can be fun and you can hit some something good. Definitely a lot of people have hit some uh, hit some big stuff. Um, I wanted to spend some time talking about grading because another phenomenon in the hobby, and obviously grading has been around for a long time, PSA and SGC and Beckett, they've all been doing this for over 20 years, a couple decades close to three. Um, but grading has really, really gotten popular in the last several years, the last three, four years, especially is just taken off PSA. I mean, million card backlog. It's due to people just getting addicted to whether it's registries or increasing the value of their cards, people ripping boxes and wanting to, you know, get the most out of it. The rookie cards, um, PSA has been big time. They've been huge. BGS, of course, has had their niche. And uh, SGC, who you've been on for a very long time, you've been a a big time SGC supporter for a while. Obviously, they've Mm. gone through a a long stretch where they were kind of known as, you know, the company to go for for pre-war or even some vintage stuff. But they've, uh, they've really been booming big time, specifically with the modern cards. I mean... They've become a huge alternative for people, and I think they're really showing that, uh, you know, obviously we have these three 
three graders and everyone has a different opinion, right? And there's different popularity levels, but I feel like SGC has been doing a great job and they're really taking advantage of an opportunity to, um, you know, grab some of the market share and continue to grow. And I think modern is the way to do it. So just want to get some thoughts um, from you on SGC, because obviously you've seen their evolution for uh, for the last several years. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's about damn time <laughs> um, that people kind of woke up or, you know, figured out, you know, that they also provide a great service and a great product. Um, I think they still remain to be the, um, third party grader that charges the least and gets your cards back the fastest. There are always exceptions There are always, you know, orders that take longer or that don't take as long or any number of reasons. Um, but, uh, it's, it, it's, it's good to see that people are, uh, open to change and, are not kind of stuck with what they are comfortable with and are uh, open to trying something new. Um, I've been grading with SGC since 2008. Um, and I know them as a company that strives on their customer service, um, their accuracy and the appeal of their holders. And um, I think those are three things that collectors really care about especially given, um, you know, where we are right now in the market and where other competitors are, um, you know, people are getting converted to SGC all the time. We were talking before how their orders from six months ago have increased 10 X. So, you know, imagine getting a hundred orders a week and each one of those orders maybe has 20 cards that's 2000 cards. Well, now you have a thousand orders and they still have, let's say 20 cards when I have 20,000 cards. I mean, it's just insane. The amount of volume that's coming through. And I think, you know, what's most amazing is that they haven't hired, they haven't scaled up yet. And a company that's looking to scale, they have to do it strategically because if the scale is not, um, strategic and, uh, they can't forecast that their business will keep momentum maybe in six to 12 months, then they're going to allow They're going to make a lot of business, a lot of business decisions that won't make a lot of sense when the time comes. And so I do know that they are um, expanding their space. I do know that they are hiring people and I do know that they are coming out with their uh, much anticipated pop report on June 1st. Um, this news was broken today um, by the SGC social networks. Um, so it's very exciting for us who have been SGC loyalists for a long time. When they went through their rebranding, they kind of dropped off uh, the registry and the pop report to kind of focus on developing the business. Well, now it's time to kind of like give collectors what they've been wanting for you know, the last two and a half years. Um and so it's exciting time. I mean, e even like with their 10x orders, they're still looking for ways to do better and looking for ways to innovate. And uh, it's really refreshing for uh, a service that has long been pretty much the same for the last 20 years. So I'm a huge SGC, SGC fan. 
Um, I'm not going to apologize about it. And um, I'm excited for I'm excited for them. And I'm excited for people who are trusting in them. Well, refreshing is definitely a great word to use because as someone who's uh, newer to actually getting cards graded through SGC, I can say um, it's definitely refreshing. It's a great experience. Um, awesome to deal with. Really easy process. And very quick, which I certainly appreciate. And it's just, it's kind of crazy because you start getting in that mindset of saying, all right, I'm going to send these cards off and I'm going to wait weeks for it to even get logged to be assured that the order is, you know, in the system correctly. And then, you know, up to months uh, waiting for it to come back, which is, you know, it's frustrating when you send your cards off parts of, you know, personal property or parts of your collection, you know, you're anxious to get them back. You'd prefer to have your entire collection kind of intact in hand uh, rather than have them, um, you know, kind of held captive for a long period of time. So I think SGC is doing a great job. I certainly hope that they're ready for this boom to continue and possibly expand. Uh, certainly they're going to need space. They're going to need people. You kind of indicated that it's very important to make the correct decisions um, you want to make them in a timely fashion, but you want to make sure you make the right decisions too because um, when your quality is trusted, you want to make sure that quality remains the same. And, you know, I've bought SGC slabs in the past, but I never really sent anything to them. And, you know, I don't – I can't explain why. I mean you can get in that mindset like I've done and dealt with PSA for years and collected a lot of uh, PSA slabs. But once you get used to it, you kind of realize it's all the same process. Like you're evaluating your cards. You're having a mindset of what you think they'll get or what they can get. You send them off. You get them back. Sometimes you're going to be extremely happy, pleasantly surprised. Other times maybe a little disappointed. But either way, the card's being graded and it's increasing in value a little bit. It's protecting the card. And everyone has different reasons to get things graded. But I, I do think SGC... I guess my uh, point when I when I've been talking to people who are considering SGC, I tell them, listen, PSA right now has the uh, you know the best resale value, the immediate resale value, but I think you just have to make a decision. You know what's important to you because once you start grading with SGC, you're going to be pleased with the outcome. You're going to enjoy the holders. Everyone likes different holders. Like I like the PSA holders a lot. I'm a big fan of them. I like the SGC holders a lot as well. The only thing I don't like about SGC is they're a little wider, a weigh a little bit more, so they're a little more difficult to ship. But you know what? If I'm getting a great service and great cards and I'm happy with the service, that really isn't much of a factor. Um, but I, I've always respected SGC's grading. I actually trust their grading more so. Um, I feel much more comfortable buying specifically a vintage card that's been graded by SGC. Even like I personally don't like the, their old <clears throat> flip at all. I actually like the new one. I hear some people complain about it from time to time. Um, mm. But I'm comfortable buying an old flip and I can just get it crossed over by them. Uh, another great thing uh, about SGC submissions is you can send in your re-slabs, crossovers, high-value cards, cheap cards. You can send them all in one submission, which is uh, really nice as opposed to 
um, the other companies where you got to send them all individually and pay for shipping and handling for each order coming back, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. And I think that's like intuitive, right? Like I had been submitting with SGC for all this time. And when, <clears throat> when I first did my first PSA submission and I found out that like, if a card's deemed a certain value that it has to be separated, it just like, didn't make sense to me. Um, cause I was just so used to sending everything, you know, to SGC and like, it's, it's a tiered system, right? So like, First tier is at ten dollars, and it's up to two fifty, two forty nine. Then from two fifty to four ninety nine is another, and you know, so on and so forth. Um, it just was, it just made sense. It was just intuitive. Like it's all going to the same place, it's all being assessed at the same time. Why does it need to be separated? I don't know. There's probably some, um, you know, process oriented something implementation at PSA or at Beckett even um, that prohibits that. But I mean, as a collector, it just makes it make my process easier. And if my process is easier then theirs will be easier too, um, because they're the ones pro providing the service. Uh, I think when, you know, we're talking about resale value, I think um, there's a lot of focus on like who graded the card and what grade it is but if we like take those elements out and just think about like this is a gem mint card this is a pristine card this is a near mint to mint card like i think that like mindset is a more healthy and like ubiquitous mindset and if we can like determine that like x card in x condition is worth x amount then it won't matter like who holdered the card. It won't matter who assessed the card. And I think that will take away a lot of the bias around third-party grading. Um, if, if there were just like a more uniform established market value of like, uh, it's just so easy to talk about the trout update. <laughs> How many times have, have we mentioned it during this conversation? I have no idea, but like everybody wants that card, and, <laughs> you know, it's it's just awesome, but uh, you know, to me, if I can buy a trout, if I have money to spend on a trout, if I can get an SGC ten for twenty six hundred and a PSA ten for three thousand, I'm gonna buy the SGC ten. Ten times out of ten, absolutely. But I think that's something that is changing, and I think it takes time, right? A lot of people are used to PSA because they've just been the most popular. Every company has had some sort of issue of some kind, and no one is perfect. No, no human being is perfect. You know, SGC had an issue with autograph authentication. PSA is obviously it's pretty well known by most that they've had a lot of issues with trimming and things going through that maybe shouldn't. And I'm sure we'll still continue to learn more about that. So, but the bottom line is like. SGC has done a really good job, and I think while PSA has been more popular, that doesn't necessarily mean they're a better grading company. They're just more well-known. So at the current moment, a PSA 10, generally speaking, will outsell an SGC 10. But with modern cards, one of the X uh, factors with SGC that will help them is the fact that you could potentially hit a pristine and if you get a pristine on the modern card, that's going to outsell the PSA 10. 
you also have the chance for the 9.5 Mint Plus because as someone who's looked at thousands and thousands and thousands of modern cards for the last several years and submit it, there's many times I'll send cards off to PSA and go, you know what? This easily could be a 10 because a 10 doesn't necessarily mean absolute perfection. But with this very tiny thing, if the wrong person sees it, would maybe get a nine. For me, if I were grading cards, a lot of people wouldn't like me because I'd be very tough. I'd be more likely to hand out a nine than a 10 on modern stuff. But I think you're a lot like me. I think we both have a pretty keen eye for raw cards, looking them over. Mm. Um, And there's some people that aren't like that. They just kind of glance at it and go, oh, this looks good. Uh, Not everyone checks every kind of every centimeter of the card. Um, but with SGC, there there are tweeners. There just absolutely are cards that, you know, that are maybe not quite a 10, but they're certainly better than your average nine. So the nine and a half with a trend of nine and a halfs outselling nines, I think that's a plus for SGC. And the, ten, the tens are close enough that what I've told some people, I'm like, listen, it depends what you want. If you just want the card protected, just pick whichever holder you like the best. If you just want to get the card sent back, SGC, an amazing option. It's going to come back really quickly. If you really, if your heart is getting every penny out of that card as you can, theoretically PSA, but you don't know when you're getting it back. Like there is a value in getting your card back in a timely fashion. So if you send a Vladimir Guerrero rookie card and you get it back in three, four weeks, maybe it's ready. Should the season start, you want to move it right away as opposed to getting it back at Christmas. I mean, these are all things that you have to factor in. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think SGC is gaining popularity. I think they're gaining a lot of popularity. You're seeing, you know, they obviously have their own department on Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff. Um, but just speaking from the YouTube perspective, because that's where both of us spend a lot of our time on social media, you're probably a little more active in the other social media avenues than me. But there's been an explosion of SGC reveals, specifically of modern cards on YouTube in the last month or two. And a lot of people say, oh, well, they're they're who's open. That's true. And that's why a lot of people took a chance on them. But the thing is, the more people see SGC reveals and they see the way the cards look in the holders and they see people who are pleased with those, the more likely they're going to get involved in SGC. And like even just speaking for myself, the more you get used to the holders to something different the more likely you're going to be to use that service to purchase cards um, that are graded by SGC. Maybe in the past where you did your PSA 10 search, you might be more likely to do an SGC search. And then you see, well, I trust SGC. I like them. That card's a little bit cheaper. Let me do that. So I actually think that the number of YouTubers alone using SGC is uh, big time for their business. And I think that will continue um, continue them moving in the right direction. So I know I just went off for a while there, Brian, but I want to give no, right. a chance to go on some thoughts. But that's just some uh, thoughts I have on SGC. I think they are a real player and they're a real option for people who like to get cards graded because 
grading, <laughs> like pack ripping, and all that stuff can be um, addictive in its own own way. Like it's fun to get cards graded. It's fun to anticipate those grades. So if SGC gets enough people to do that often enough, that's uh, big time for them. Yeah, very much so. You know, again regarding the topic of uh, grading being addicting. Um, but I think SGC has seen a lot of YouTube boost, especially from people who follow Nolan's channel. I think Nolan really is just exclusively now submitting with SGC. Um, I mean, he, submit, he he uploaded a PSA video today, but he submitted that order in 2019. Um, and like, there's no doubt that Nolan is uh, one of the more influential and knowledgeable members of the YouTube community. I mean, he, he's, uh, you know, his eBay store is, you know, he, he's a one man show, but he's got a lot of knowledge and um, he's, he's really fun to watch. He's, he's like no nonsense, strict to business, show the cards, no fluff, no frills. And um, I think people like that about, you know, his stuff. And, you know, because he has such a good following and he's a reputable resource in the hobby, people are you know, more apt to give SGC a try rather than like me with my 400 some odd subscribers being like, SGC is the best. <laughs> They're like less likely to listen to me than to like a YouTube powerhouse like you or like Nolan or like Phil. Well, I know for me, like, I know Nolan told me, I think, God, probably like six months ago, he's like, dude, you got to give SGC a try. You're going to love it. And I had been thinking about sending some stuff off to him because even with like the whole nine five thing, I remember I had some cards that I was like, dude, this card, this PSA might give it a 10, but they're probably going to bang it for a nine and it's better than a nine. So I remember having some cards that I had planned on sending it. And I, I just, I didn't take that first step for a while and I should have, but it took a while, but I eventually did. And obviously, and honestly, what, got me to finally send some stuff in is at the last Philly show got there like five minutes late had a stand in line for PSA for two hours I remember that <laughs> then yeah. sit there and you know deal with them for quite a while and I dropped off all this stuff and then I had a few cards that I brought with me that I wanted to get uh reholdered and I just had them in my bag and I ended up stopping by the SGC booth with uh, Ray and Ed, two buddies on YouTube, Ray from Philly and Wesker Griff. And I just sat down and I started talking to them. I was talking to Peter and talking about stuff. And, you know, I kind of mentioned that I really wanted to give them a try. And then, you know, I ended up just submitting those three cards just to, I think it was like a crossover, a re-slab. It might have been two crossovers. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was really nice to talk to him. He was telling me about different, things i kind of mentioned to him i was like listen I, I submit a lot of stuff with psa i don't know if he knew exactly how much i did with them but i told him it was a pretty substantial amount and uh so just getting to talk to them a little bit um you know getting that first submission there and by the time you know it came back so quick um i was like you know i ended up exchanging some emails with them and doing a few phone calls and then next thing you know i've now sent off I think I sent off like 240 at one point. And no, I sent off 101, got that back. 
just got back like a 240 card order about 150 of them are mine which i will be doing a video on shortly and then now i have close to 300 cards out with them right now which again they're not all mine because i actually have some people who were gonna submit to psa who decided they didn't want to wait and they're giving sgc a try um so i'm gonna wait on those and i already have my next kind of group of stuff i want to go through so i'm definitely looking forward to uh submitting them because it's been it's just been a pleasure to kind of do business with them and another thing that we really didn't mention but something that is just amazing that sgc's got going on you know when that order pops and the fact that you know even though it's going to ship that day you still got to wait two three days for it to get to you you can see your cards you know, very quickly they get those scans up. That is, uh, yeah, absolutely amazing. They got to work a little bit on organization and maybe different folders for for different submissions. But outside of that, like the images are just fantastic. Like if you decide you want to sell a card, there's no reason to scan it or take a picture yourself. <laughs> just well, copy and paste that because that's awesome. Yeah, I think that is like. Not what we asked for, but it's like a beautiful, like quality of life change, right? <clears throat> like you said it perfectly. Like your order is graded. You're like chomping at the bit for it to come back. It ships and you're like, okay, like three days later, I'm getting my cards. Well, like not so much, like not so with SGC, your order pops. And then like within 24 hours of, of that happening, your order will ship and then your seller ready images will populate in, in, in the box uh, account that they've set up for you. So um, it's also really fun to like, kind of like Dave, um, David Bradford did that on his channel. He, he did like a reveal. I thought it was genius, like a blind reveal of like his seller ready images. Um, like live so he would like scroll through the different images click on them and then be like oh i got a you know i got a 10 or i got a nine five you know whatever it was i thought that was really smart um and i really like the celebrity images because you can easily like post it anywhere like i love posting my stuff on instagram and facebook um because like every, like a lot of people who collect cards in the 21st century you like to show off a little bit like if I got a pristine 10 Fernando Tatis junior rookie card, you better believe I'm posting it to like five groups because I want to show people that I got this <laughs> and to have like a high quality image to do that with is powerful. And like we, we've all been there where we're like trying to like maneuver your phone, turn the light on, move the card, turn the light off, take a picture, sides crap, do it all again. Forget all that. The cards go to the SGC. Get your seller ready image. It's that. Like it, it's the best solution. Like you don't have to like mess with that stuff anymore. I just think it's like such a like a nice quality of life change that like again no one asked for, but it's such like a great little feature. And they do it for free. Like you're not paying any more for it. It's part of the service. It's great. Love yeah, it. So it's much. awesome. I love it. But yeah, SGC has done a great job. They've definitely won uh won my business. I'll be continuing to use them quite a bit. And like I said, I, I think I think with the influence of people getting used to seeing 
cards returned by SGC by other people and then trying it out for themselves, that just helps. That's just people yeah. get used to using it and they're going to say, you know what, if I can get my cards back a little quicker, that might be what gets them involved and you can just get hooked on things very easily. So I think, I think that and the closing gap in, in the market price helps a lot too, because some people still are stuck on the PSA side for the sole purpose of the perceived uh, value. Uh, Cause there's a lot of people, you know, value is a very key factor, but I think eventually those numbers continue to get closer and closer. People aren't going to be married necessarily to one company or the other. And, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know what the numbers are. I don't, I don't know the business. It's like, to me, I'm not a BGS fan. You know, I understand a lot of people love them and they're very popular for, the first Bowman rookies and stuff. And, you know, I, I don't know, I guess we'll see. But to me, I feel like I've been seeing a lot more action with SGC than BGS. And I feel like that's, uh, you know, a trend that's kind of continuing, but you know, we'll, we'll see what, uh, what happens. There's plenty of factors, but I think there's, there's three, three people out there grading right now that are considered those top three. And I think there's plenty of room in this hobby for all three to, uh, you know, supply business, supply their services to uh, the ever growing number of collectors and people involved in this hobby. Yeah. And listen, like competition in this space is good. Like without PSA crushing it, then maybe SGC doesn't innovate. And, Without SGC, you know, like killing it for the last four or six weeks with the amount of orders they've come in and gotten out the door, like maybe PSA doesn't open up so soon. Like they opened, I think, because they saw that like SGC was seriously taking the market and they were a serious threat. Um, and now Beckett and PSA are open again. Um, but I think that had largely to do with the fact that SGC stayed open during COVID. You know, state regulations are questionable in Florida, to say the least. But nevertheless, like they took advantage of the cards they were dealt and they were aggressive in a, in a, in a position, a situation where they had to be. And they kind of forced the hand of their competitors because they saw they were going to be losing money and losing customers. So. I think competition in this, in this space is good. We don't want complacency. We care about our stuff. We care about our cards. And we want, like, the best service for them. And, um, you know, there's plenty of room, like you said, for three third-party graders. Um, and if, if they keep challenging each other to do better, then it's only for, it's only for the benefit of us. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I think we all miss the days. Like, I'm a I'm a pro tops guy, and I like tops, but I wouldn't mind having my choice being able to buy some upper deck cards as well. But oh. that's just that's just not yeah, what no. the reality of the baseball card market is now. I mean, I think tops does a really good job, and they offer a lot of different stuff. But it'd probably be a little better if you had you know three or four companies producing baseball cards but that's just not what it is so you know you, you have options in grading and I, I do encourage everyone to kind of try them all out especially with so many people new to the hobby or being reintroduced to the hobby maybe grading wasn't around I mean you just need to know that you know PSA SGC BGS you gotta pick and choose them 
go out and buy some slabs. You know, you don't even have to get stuff graded and just kind of decide which ones you like the best. I mean, they're all a little bit different. They all have um, certain aspects that might be better than the others or that you might like. Um, there's a lot of choices to uh, choose from. I mean, you got to be careful. You don't want to go out there buying BCCG10s or anything. So yeah, you definitely want to do some research, but uh, there's a lot of cool stuff out there. So any final thoughts on uh, the ever-growing grading kind of market because grading is becoming more and more important by the day as we see you know the high grade the high grade 80s and 90s stuff kind of continue to excel and that uh desire to grade modern stuff so grading is definitely here to stay um for a while it's it's just a matter to see uh rises to the top or if they split evenly or what yeah i think like a question that always comes to the collector's mind is like, how do I look at a card and determine its condition? And I think the best way to do that is like immerse yourself with cards. Look at graded cards, look at raw cards, look at cards um, like graded cards that are an eight, look at cards that are a nine, look at cards that are a 10 and look at cards that are pristine. Um, even if you have to buy like a card that, um, you otherwise would not to like be your kind of like example or exemplar to go off of do it because it will train your eye. Now, is that like an exact science? Absolutely not. <laughs> There's no way, uh, to like know for certain the card you're looking at is a nine, 10, nine, five pristine, whatever it is. Um, but as the more you familiarize yourself with, and, and you can speak to this, I'm sure, more fluently than I can, but um, the more you familiarize yourself with the kind of card you're looking at and uh, like the specific condition issues that that card may have, the more fluent and the more predictive you, you can be in terms of responding to like, do I send this card into grade or not? Like, is it worth my time? Is it worth my investment to send that card? Um, like, do you have any like quick, quick hit tips for like a listener that might be like, I want to send a grading order, but I don't know like what the heck I'm looking at. I mean, I think you kind of said it pretty well. Like you have to train yourself, you have to get used to it. And it's definitely going to take a while. Because there's just so many differences. It can vary from kind of product to product. To me, I actually love sending in vintage stuff because oftentimes I don't really care what it grades. <laughs> I like have an idea in my mind what it'll be, but I'm kind of like, oh, as long as it's this, I'm happy. With modern, you really, really want to get that 10 if at all possible. You can live with a nine and a half, even a nine on certain products. You don't really want to go below that for something that's, you know, a very recent card. But just everything's different. I mean, you look at like some of the Panini products like Optic or even Prism. Not that I open a ton of that stuff, but even when I've opened a couple boxes here and there, I see indentations in the back or little scratches off center. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the Tops products for baseball, a little different, but just like your Chrome cards, you do want to check everything. Like for me, for the modern cards, I check all four corners front and back i check all four edges i check the centering front and back and the surfaces and you just really want to have good lighting and kind of check them 
Chrome cards, you want to look for little surface scratches, stuff like paper, paper products, tops paper. You got to look for those little indentations that you might not notice um, at first glance because most cards, modern cards at first glance, you're like, oh, wow, it's a brand new card. It looks great. Mm -hmm. It's definitely little issues that can, you know, bump it down. It's like, all right, well, that's a little issue that might bump it down to a nine and a half. This has a little more of an issue that is probably going to have it be a nine. And then, you know, beyond that, if it has multiple issues, that's where you get into the eight and a half, eight and even below. Um, it's, it's just really attention to detail and getting used to that. I mean, eventually when you're used to it, like I can look at a card in 15 seconds and have a pretty good idea. And then I, you know, from time to time, we'll look a little closer at certain cards, but just because you pull something fresh out of a pack doesn't necessarily mean it's a, a gem mint card. Think of it this way. If you go and buy a pack of like 1985 tops, like you might pull a pack fresh card, but could have wax on it. It could have gum on it. It could certainly be off center. Um, and mm -hmm. you can say the same thing for modern cards. There's always a chance there's uh, denser issues, rough cuts on the edge. So just attention to detail. Check it all out thoroughly if you're looking for the highest grade possible. Yeah. I think for me, like my process is interesting because I trained my eye assessing vintage cards first. And I think like if I can look at a vintage card for long enough, I may not be able to tell if it's been altered. But I can definitely, like, with a lot of certainty, determine what the grade would be. And that has trained my eye to be really strict when looking at modern cards. Um, and so what I like to do is I use, I use a 10 times loop with a light on it. And I actually make my apartment, like, really dark, like, super dark, kind of like a grading room. Like, they've always, like, been rumored to be, like, really low lit, like a little bit of light to like really illuminate what you're looking at. And when you kind of like put yourself in that kind of atmosphere and environment, uh, you can more easily pick up things rather than like looking at a card, like in plain light, because light will help determine like if there's an indentation because it will um, bounce off of and reflect off of the indentation differently. Or if a corner is dog-eared, it, and you move the card in a certain way, it will um, uh, interact with that corner in a different way. Um, so you definitely like more, maybe even like as important as like looking at the card, you have to manipulate your, like your lighting situation um, too. Like I love looking at cards, especially when I'm looking to grade them in, in low lighting. I think that like I can see stuff the best there. Well, lighting is definitely a key issue. Um, I don't really use a loop, though I guess I could, and I'm sure that would help. But what I actually generally use is um, I have some photo, like photo shoot or video lights that you would use to illuminate for a photograph. Mm. So I just pop, pop them on, generally speaking, so I get that really good light not some kind of dim fluorescent light or anything like that. So I get that really good, strong light. And that's what I, you know, I, you know, I just check the entire car. I, you know, I'll tilt it. I'll look, just kind of go follow every kind of square centimeter of that card and uh, check it out. But, you know, that strong yeah. lighting 
you know, you can see anything, you know, there's certain cards mm-hmm. you're going to see something right away. Other times if it's a little smaller, another problem with some of the Chrome cards nowadays are the little dimples from time to time. There's things you have to look out for. So if you have the really good lighting, you will notice that stuff. Um, so lighting is a key, um, whether that be in a loop or a good light, I actually recommend these, uh, lights. If you're interested in doing videos or photos, I mean, not maybe necessary for Instagram, but if you're into YouTube and stuff, like if you pick up a lighting kit, they're not all that expensive and that will enhance the look of your videos uh, substantially. That's a good masterclass tip. I think uh, it would be fun if like some people from the community might like pull, like get their heads together and like give like a YouTube grading card masterclass like someone focus on this attribute someone focus on that attribute and kind of like give a lot of expertise to i think like a a relatively like underserved part of of the hobby like people people you know i don't i don't know if they like share like the trade secrets right like you send a card off to be graded and it's like the secret sauce and it's like done behind the closed door and like, don't look behind the curtain. But like, do we really know like what's going on? The people that like have been doing it for a long time and are confident and get like good grades, they do. So they should be able to like share their expertise and like get other collectors who are looking to do the same kind of thing like to their level. I think that would be cool. Definitely an interesting idea. I do remember uh, it wasn't that long ago. It might have been a few months ago. Bob Lewis, another YouTuber, a lot of YouTube shout outs today. He uh, yeah. he was talking on one of his videos and he mentioned, um, I guess, something I mentioned in a video one time. And it, it pertained to modern cards because that's what I have graded the most of, kind of the opposite of you, even though you, you definitely do a lot of modern now. But mm. – I mentioned, I said, like, if you're serious about getting good grades on your modern cards, like, you can't send, you can't look at a card and send it off because you want the grade. It's not about the grade you want, it's about the grade it is, so you have to look for reasons it's not a 10. Like, look for those flaws, and if you seek out the flaws, you'll be more likely to find them rather than just glance and overlook it and then be surprised when it comes back like an eight or something. Yeah. That's a good philosophy. I think. Yeah. Because the majority of cards have some sort of flaw. And once you get used to grading, you'll know that if it's something very, very, very slight, it's going to likely pass for a PSA 10 or even an SGC 10 um, because it's so minuscule that it doesn't, really affect the overall appeal of the card but you know there's times where you're just going to find those small little things and you're like all right well that's definitely at best a nine maybe an eight so then you just put it aside and you go all right well it's probably not worth grading at this time unless it's something you know if it's a one of one of your favorite player and you just want to have it slabbed because that's the way you like to collect that's fine you don't need to have a 10 on everything um but if you're spending the money and the time it takes to get cards graded, obviously you want the best grades possible. I think that's well said, Mike. Well, it's been a, 
a very lengthy podcast, but a very good podcast. And I've had a blast talking to you. Um, we've had a really positive conversation. So I, I've been kind of debating to myself the last few minutes whether I want to bring this up to not bring any negativity in. But I do have to ask you real quick because I'm on here yeah. talking to you. The 2020 National, it was announced recently that it has been officially postponed um, to the middle, mid to late December. Um, personally, I don't really – I'm at the point where I'm not necessarily expecting that to even happen. I think it was moved as a last-ditch effort to keep that possibility alive. Luckily, yourself – and uh, me, we're both fairly local to Atlantic City in terms of we can kind of just make a last-minute decision should we want to. And we don't have to worry about flights and um, really all that stuff. So it, I don't think mm -hmm. it has a huge effect on us. But like, do you buy that the National is going to take place this year? Because obviously um, – it's something that a lot of people in social media look forward to. A lot of collectors in general look forward to, right? But many of us in the social media element of this hobby, YouTube, Instagram, whoever you associate most with, this is like your yearly pilgrimage and you look forward to it. And it's something that we, uh, we always look forward to, right? I look forward Absolutely. to it because I get to look at and crazy array and variety of cards i can make some purchases companies are there tops panini sgc psa and you know you have athletes there all these people there but to me the best part's always uh meeting up with people in the community and you look forward to yeah. it and to have that taken away this year or altered is definitely disappointing but i think it's something we've known could be coming for the last couple months so i just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on uh you know the national um, being postponed, and even if it takes place, it won't be the same based on the time of the year uh, if it takes place. But just kind of your thoughts, Brian. I don't anticipate missing another national for like as long as I'm collecting. <laughs> if if there's like an emergency that I I could not be there, then you know I'll have to miss it. For something like this, um, you know I think. I'm really hoping by that time a lot of this has has cleared up. Uh time will certainly tell. Um you know, that's that's like another what? It's another it's it's like 7 months away now. You know, you know, they pushed it back 4 months and, and we're in May right now. So, you know, is it the best idea to get people all together very close and touching everything? Probably not. You know, but like we have to rethink like how we're going to like live our lives from like this point on. And, um, I think, you know, if we, if we follow state, local, federal guidelines, then, uh, it will be an easier experience. Um, will some, will this deter some people? Absolutely. New Jersey is not fun when it's cold at all. Um, and, Atlantic City is not the easiest place to get to in the first place. Um, I know I'll be taking a bus from New York City, and that's that's a good way for me to go. But for people flying in or driving from a long distance, it's not it's not easy. Um, you know, with that being said, like the time of year is also a huge challenge. I was speaking with a dealer today who I'm, you know, acquainted with, and you know, he's he's not thrilled with the idea of it being. In Atlantic City in December, 
Um, but you know, like it's his time to make his money. So he's not going to miss it. He's not, he's maybe not going to like it. He may not do as well as he did last year or maybe even in Cleveland. Um, but it's a huge opportunity for dealers, especially, but you know, is it ideal? No. Will I make every effort to be there if I can? Yes, for sure. Yeah, it's just it's such a bizarre time. Starting on a Saturday, going to Wednesday. Uh, certainly, you know, if it does take place, I'll do everything in my power to uh, get there. I might not be able to do the full show like I typically would, but definitely find a way to get there for a day or two for sure. Um, it's just, you know, it's unfortunate. Just but everything right now is not what we were expecting. Right, right now we thought our teams would be a month and a half into their season and we're still waiting to conclusively see that they're going to play and obviously beyond that all the other you know variable issues um with the entire world right now but you know just specifically on the national it's disappointing especially when it's a more local show i guess it's better than it just being outright canceled at least it still goes gives us that hope obviously there's only so many technically probably open dates uh available at this point um, yeah you know and it was i think it was unlikely it was going to be moved i mean would i love to see it at the philadelphia convention center of of course but you know kind of know that wasn't going to happen i think an interesting idea is that like you know we have to wait a long time between the 2019 national and 2020 national but it will be less time between 2020 national and a 2021 national. So something to like look forward to is like a quick little succession of like huge, huge shows trying to, you know, spin it positively, I suppose. Yeah. We'll just see what happens. It's definitely something that's different. You have the factors of kind of unpredictable weather and the fact that it is around like a week or so before Christmas is not um, ideal. Cause it's obviously a portion of the year, all the holidays going on then where people typically travel or getting prepared to travel, spending money on gifts. So there's just, there's a lot of factors, uh, besides the fact that some people are going to be turned off and, you know, not feel comfortable going to the show at that time. Um, right. it, it just won't be the same. That doesn't mean there won't be people show attending. There certainly will be. And I sure it'll still be big and a big, uh, big draw. Cause people are loving the hobby right now. It's just, it definitely won't be the same, but that just gives you more reason to look forward to, uh, you know, upcoming nationals because they're absolutely a blast. Just a ton of, ton of fun to, uh, you know, check out and look forward to. But thankfully, as you stated earlier in this podcast, you know, buying baseball cards is super easy. A couple clicks of the button on eBay, and you have yourself a card in a few days. And with the presence of social media, you can interact via Instagram and Facebook. Uh, there's so many groups, so many specified topics on Facebook to check out. And then, of course, you know, a lot of people on YouTube to uh, check out. And, you know, there's a lot of popular YouTube channels out there, a lot that have sprung up recently that have kind of gone a little bit mainstream. But there's a lot of smaller YouTubers that, you know, people are very interactive and they're great to get to know, provide a lot of great insight. So I encourage people who have not, you know, checked out that format when it comes to sports cards um, to kind of search around and click around. And you're going to find a lot of people where, 
you know, you'll be entertained, you'll become informed. That's a great way to learn about the hobby a lot. And uh, B Ralph Six is definitely a, a strong option that I very much encourage. Well, thank you, man. But everyone has to start with your channel. That's kind of uh, the bread and butter, and then you have to kind of figure out your way from there. <laughs> There's a lot of good options out there, but Brian, it was uh, awesome talking to you. I hope everyone out there listening to this had a good time, learned a little bit, had some uh, you know entertainment, and uh, feel good about the hobby because I definitely had a blast talking to you. It's a pleasure, man, and thanks everyone for listening. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Hobby Talk. If you're listening to it on YouTube, feel free to comment down below. would certainly appreciate that. Share it. And everywhere else out there, I know it's on iTunes and SoundCloud and some other one that's really popular that I forget what it's called offhand. But I appreciate <laughs> everyone listening. Have yourselves a great one. Peace.